If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians 5, and we are going to be in the same passage that we were in uh, last Sunday, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, as we take on this first part of what we see as a household code, as it were, uh, how we live as followers of Jesus and the different relationships within our lives. Uh, we planted a garden at our house for the second year in a row, and another year meant more lessons in things to do and things not to do. Uh, I learned more about harvesting and about trellising. I experimented with some staggered plantings. I discovered what grows well in our plot and what doesn't grow at all uh, in our plot. And I've got some ideas for next year. One of the things I've learned is you got to take notes if you want to be a successful gardener. You got to say, this is what worked and this is what didn't. But in the midst of all these things and all of the ways that I'm thinking about how we can improve our garden year after year, sometimes it's good to remember that what a garden is, is really all about is a seed planted in dirt. And a healthy seed in halfway decent dirt is really a good start for any garden. If we think about a, a marriage that is healthy, a marriage that grows in grace through the years and that produces fruit, we can get caught up in focusing on details similar to trellising or crop rotation because there's a lot of ways to tend to our marriages that are helpful. There's wisdom found in a variety of resources regarding how we can deal with conflict or how we should manage our money. There are books about intimacy in marriage as well as books for the newly married and books for the long-time married. But, but in the midst of all of this, we should never forget that every marriage simply needs some good dirt, some good soil to grow in. And here in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Paul is not focused so much on the peripheral ways to cultivate a God-honoring marriage. Rather, he is helping us understand the core heart attitudes and the key spiritual perspectives that change the way we approach every aspect of our relationship to our spouse. He's describing the kind of soil that a healthy, God-honoring, spirit-filled marriage grows in. The kind of soil that healthy conflict management and deep intimacy and everything else grows out of. He's showing us, as we said last week, and as we will take as our big idea again this week, a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. And it's, it's this mixture of these two commands, humble submission and sacrificial love that, that provides the, the best soil for a marriage to thrive in. If we come to this passage, as we are all sort of tempted to, if we come here looking for five steps to a healthy marriage or 10 things to do to make your marriage strong, then we're all gonna be disappointed. Um, because as far as hands-on, practical, everyday tips for marriage, this passage doesn't have them. Uh, even specific applications of these two commands that are given are absent. All of this leads us to conclude that, that Paul is not so much concerned with telling us exactly what to do in our specific marriages as he is telling us who to be. 
or maybe not who to be, but, but who we are, because knowing who we are as children of God and members of his body shapes how we live as husbands and wives, but also just as Christians in general. And yet again, we're reminded that this entire book is saying to us that God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. The more you think about it, the, the more that this lack of specific application actually makes a lot of sense. In fact, the lack of specificity reveals the wisdom of Scripture. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Maybe you've seen this list of things that a, a good 1950s housewife was told to do to prepare for her husband's return from work. Uh, it was published in a magazine in 1955, which really is not that long ago. And it says things like this. Number one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead even the night before to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Number three, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. He has just been with a lot of work-weary people. Number 10, you may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. And number 17, don't ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment or integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. Let's be clear. As much as people seem to idealize this era of American history, these statements are not inspired applications of Ephesians chapter five. In fact, some of what is said here is really unhealthy and really dangerous for a marriage. And so considering this list, here's the point I'm trying to make. I think that, that Paul could also have given us a very, very specific applications for husbands and wives. But, but given what we saw last week about how different marriage was in the first century as it is compared to now, if he did that, those applications would be more archaic and more unapplicable it, than, than this one that we just read that was written some 70 years ago. Because specifics of marriage vary so widely across time and culture. As we said last week, how each of us applies even these truths within our marriages in this time and day, it's different for all of us. So instead of specifics, what does Paul do? He speaks broadly, and he speaks to the universal struggle that we all have in all relationships against pride and self-centeredness. The great enemy of marriage, the great enemy of any healthy relationship, and here maybe is the way, if you're not married, that you can apply the principles here, because the great enemy to, to marriage and to all healthy relationships is pride. Pride is what causes wives to not want to take the command towards submission uh, seriously and, and, and respect it. Uh, and, and pride is what causes husbands to function as the head of a marriage in a way that doesn't resemble Christ, doesn't look like him at all. Therefore, the call to humbly submit and sacrificially love strikes at the very heart of what causes marriages to crumble, and it reveals what will cause marriages to thrive. Again, a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. And so I want to read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 again. 
And we're going to think on these two commands that make up the rich soil in which a spirit-filled, God-honoring marriage will grow. Look at Ephesians, and we'll begin in verse 21. Submitting, uh, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Two key commands that make up the soil of a God-honoring, spirit-filled marriage. Paul first says to wives, wives, submit to your husbands. That's the first command here. Now, we said a good bit about this last week, cleared away some of the weeds that have attached themselves to the word submission. So I would encourage you to listen to that message uh, if you have not, if only so that uh, it's clear what Paul's not saying about submission. Uh, Also, so you're clear what I'm not saying about submission. Uh, But today, let's speak a little bit more to what God's word is saying regarding the role of a wife in marriage. And again, we should point out that this command submit in verse 22 is supplied from verse 21 where a fruit of being filled with the Spirit is said to be humble submission to one another as the body of Christ out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, the, the wife's submission to her husband is one expression of the submission to one another that we are to have as followers of Jesus. And it's submission within a specific relationship, namely the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. What comes out to me in this is that it's, it's within the safety and the security of the commitment of marriage that a woman is called to this command. We should note that the call for the members of the body of Christ to submit to one another does raise the question of how a husband who is a Christian obeys verse 21 in relation, in relation to his Christian wife, who is also his sister in Christ. Uh, Tim Keller helpfully says this, while Paul writes that the husband is head of his wife, whatever it means cannot negate the fact that he is also his wife's Christian brother and bondservant, according to Galatians 5.13. Husbands and wives must serve each other, must give themselves up for one another. That does not destroy the exercise of authority within a human relationship but it does radically transform it. So the the humble service required of every follower of Jesus exists within marriage for both parties, as does also the authority within marriage. 
And it would seem that this authority of the husband is not to create separation between the husband and wife as if he is higher than her, but rather that it's for the sake of unity and harmony within the marriage. S.M. Bao offers a really good argument for this emphasis based on the context of the command within the book of Ephesians. He says this, the focus of Ephesians is unity in the inaugurated new creation community, which this submission is designed to facilitate. It facilitates unity. So therefore, the, the, the wife serves the husband through submission, laying aside some of her rights for the sake of the unity and harmony of the marriage relationship. And in so doing, she is ultimately serving Christ and allowing the marriage to display the gospel. You see, the, this submission reflects the role of the church in relationship to Christ, who is the head and the savior of the body. The, the church, all of us, submits to the rule of Jesus. He is our king. We live in subjection to him, seeking to do as he commands for his glory and for our good. And though it's not mentioned here, we might also think of the submission of Jesus himself to the will of the Father for the good of the church. He is our example in all things, including humble submission for the good of others. Christ is also the one to whom, to whom we, we are all ultimately submitting our lives. And the submission of the wife to her husband is truly a submission to Jesus. This reminds us that, that a wife is not called to violate God's word or her conscience in obedience to her husband. Just, just as the early church was able to respect the authority of the government and also disobey it when they were asked to do things against God's revealed will, so too the Christian wife is not called to unthinking submission. After all, this submission is the result of what? It's the result of the Spirit's filling. And the Spirit would be grieved if the wife was called to do something against God's word. I think this also reveals something about the character of the husband's leadership, doesn't it? The image being reflected is, in a marriage is of the church's submission to Christ, and therefore, the husband's leadership has to be like the leadership of Jesus. In other words, the husband's role as head is to be used for the good of his wife. Any proper use of authority in the scriptures involves blessing those who are led. And this is, this, is, this is the kind of leadership that Christ has over his children. John Stott says this about Jesus. His headship expresses care rather than control. Responsibility rather than rule. The characteristic of his headship is not so much lordship as saviorhood. That's the kind of leader that Christ is. Care, not control. Responsibility, not, not rule saviorhood, not lordship. And then Stott brings this all together and he writes of a wife that her submission is not to be unthinking obedience to his rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. And so with this talk of caring leadership, we naturally arrive at the command given to husbands in verses 25 to 32. The fact that these verses were even here could have been surprising in the ancient world. Their presence in some way tries to get at an answer to the question of why should I listen to authority? And in Paul's day, the answer in many homes could have been because I said so. And sadly, even today, 
There are some husbands who think that their title as husband is all that is needed for them to assume an authoritarian role within their marriage. But Paul spells out that the, the kind of men that husbands are supposed to be as they lead their wives, caring for them in the spirit of Christ. In fact, he dedicates three times as many words to this section on, on husbands as he does to the command for wives. And what is the command? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. The, the commands then that form the rich soil of a healthy marriage are not wives submit to your husbands and husbands rule over or lead your wives. That's not the command, is it? The command for the husband is to love his wife. And his leadership spoken of in verses 22 through 24 is to be focused on caring for his wife and seeking to bless her. His love is to be patterned after the way that Christ loves the church. Specifically, Paul points out three things that inform the husband's love. They are these. Christ sacrificed himself for the sanctification of the church. Second, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And third, Christ has bound himself in a covenant to the church. And so I want to walk through these ideas and see how they help us understand what it looks like for a Christian husband to obey this command to love his wife. And what I'm struck by in some ways is that a good marriage is rooted in good theology. <laughs> we don't often think that way, but having a good theology, and theology, remember, is always practical. It's not something that stays in our head. It comes in our hearts, but having a solid marriage means you have good theology. And so the love for the husband is, is shaped by these theological realities. And the first one is that Christ sacrificed himself for the sanctification of the church. That shapes the way that a husband loves his wife, the fact that Christ sacrificed himself for the sanctification of the church. Paul here gets at the heart of the gospel. Let me summarize what he's saying. He reminds us that Jesus Christ gave himself up on the cross so that he could cleanse and purify the church, which he accomplishes through the purifying power of the water of the word. And he says that the purpose of this washing is so that he can present the church to himself. What an interesting picture. He can present the church to himself as a beautiful bride, having no spot or wrinkle or blemish, but being completely holy. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll know that it's not shy regarding the imagery of the unfaithfulness of God's people to God, of the, of the way that in our sin we all defile God's image in us. And our sin has made us filthy before God. We're stained with sin. We're unable to remove these stains in our own strength. You might think about a time when you've been working, you, maybe you've painted something or you've actually stained some, some wood and you know how if you get that on your hands, you, you can't get it off. And that's part of the picture here. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, the gospel call of Isaiah 118 comes to us and it says this, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we might be a part of the bride of Christ described in Revelation as adorned and beautiful for her husband. 
you know, a white wedding dress is not just a fashion statement for the follower of Christ. It's a picture. It's a gospel picture reminding us that Christ himself has purified his bride through his sacrifice and that we will one day be presented, be presented to him with no stains of sin. The washing of water with the word mentioned here is likely actually a reference to baptism and to the word of the gospel that baptism represents. Uh, given the context, we might, uh, we, we might even simplify the, the water of the word down to the, to the word of love spoken by Christ the bridegroom to his bride, the church. In the good news of the gospel, God cleanses us, and then he says to us clearly through that, I love you. You are mine. Cleansing with water, it's a rich metaphor, isn't it? And Paul actually could have in mind the the traditional bath that a a Jewish or a Greek bride would take before their their wedding, asking his readers to let that ritual point them to the greater cleansing that's pictured in baptism and the cleansing that's accomplished by Christ. Or maybe, in fact, he could be pointing us to what we read earlier, to Jesus washing his disciples' feet the night before his death, helping husbands to to see that they are to love their wives not by ruling over them, but by stooping to serve them, as Jesus has done. How does all this translate to the way that a husband loves his wife? I think it means this. I think it means that the husband loves his wife in a way that leads her to holiness. The husband loves his wife in a way that leads her to holiness. Her, her, he loves her in a way that preserves her purity as a child of God. And, and he does it through the good word of the gospel. A marriage then is to be a place where husband and wife are growing ever deeper in holiness and purity, where the forgiveness of the gospel is played out every day and there are always reminders of the fact that God has washed us with the water of the word of salvation. Christ sacrificed himself for the sanctification of the church and so a husband loves his wife by laying down his life in a way that leads her to holiness and to greater love for Christ. He leads the way in making the gospel the central reality of their relationship, taking the initiative in in things like family devotions or times of prayer. He is the champion for the church making the gathering of the believers each week a priority in their household. He provides opportunities for serving the church and for serving the world. Much of this, of course, is done in harmony in a marriage, but but the husband needs to never drag his feet in spiritual matters, but rather lead the way. And therefore, husband and wife live together in view of the return of Christ, allowing their marriage to be a place of preparation for their mutual presentation to Jesus, the bridegroom. This kind of, of love and, and leadership is not belittling, but it's, it's empowering to a wife. Stott says that of this kind of love that it, it frees and encourages a wife to be completely herself so that she might develop into her full potential as a child of God. Husbands, do we love our wives in this way? Do we lay down our lives and lead them in such a way that they're able to become everything they are capable of being as a Christian? Christ sacrificed himself for the sanctification of the church, and so too must a Christian husband. 
Second, a husband's love for his wife is shaped by this truth that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Paul gets us to the truth that Christ cares for the church by reminding husbands that they should care for their wives in the same way that they care for themselves. In other words, if you have trouble wrapping your mind around the depth of the love of Jesus, then we can all probably understand the fact that we love and care for ourselves. Uh, When I'm hungry, I get something to eat. When I'm tired, I go to sleep. When I'm cold, I put on a jacket. And so the illustration the, the illustration here uh, is that we who have become one with our wife should care for her in the same way that we care for ourselves. What she feels should be what we feel. What she's concerned about should be what we are concerned about, as in the same way that we would care for our own bodies. We find, in fact, that this is what Christ has done for us, isn't it? He's united himself to us. We are in him, and so he nourishes and cares for us. He supplies all of our needs. He does everything that he can to give us all that we need for our joy and for our thriving. And so the husband wisely follows Christ's lead and seeks to do everything he can to nourish and to care for his wife. Of course, this doesn't mean that a husband tries to buy his wife's affection or or that he gives her everything her heart desires. We know that even in caring for our own bodies, that there's wisdom in withholding some things. There are foods that you only eat in moderation. There's clothes that you don't need to purchase. And so the husband seeks to care for his wife in a way that leads her to the greatest spiritual, emotional, and physical health. When I was single, I thought about me. (laughs) I thought about my desires and what I wanted. But as I fell in love with my wife, I thought more and more about her needs and her desires. And love is an interesting thing. Love, in fact, often makes you neglect your own needs and desires in in favor of the the needs and desires of the one that you love. We probably all have stories of, of love where we did really dumb things that probably weren't really smart for ourselves, but we did them out of love. Sadly, this kind of sacrificial, others-focused kind of love is, is sometimes strongest in those days of, of dating or in engagement. And then in marriage, a husband and a wife actually revert back to the independence of those days when they were single. But Paul tells us that a husband loves his wife by nourishing and cherishing her because every day he's becoming more one with her. So I'd ask husbands, are we selfish in our love? Are we concerned only with our needs and our desires? Or are we seeking to model our Savior as we cherish our wives and we pursue her greatest pleasure and even pushing her towards her greatest potential in every realm of our life together? All of this feeds into the third truth, namely that Christ has bound himself in a covenant to the church. Christ has bound himself in a covenant to the church. If you've been with us studying Ephesians, you know that Paul has been leaning heavily on the image of the church as the the body of Christ. And here he says that the body of Christ is also the bride of Christ. And just as the church is united to Christ who is the head, so too the church, the bride, is united to Christ, the bridegroom. Paul quotes from Genesis 2 where Moses says that 
that the first marriage lays out a pattern whereby a man and woman leave their parents and are joined to one another, forming, forming an, an entirely new unit, becoming one flesh and thereby a new family. Uh, this one flesh union is most clearly expressed in sexual union, which is why in the scriptures it seems that that, the, that physical act is what marked the beginning of the marriage even more so than the ceremony. And it's why the scriptures are so clear that sexual union is reserved only for a couple who has bound themselves to one another in a lifelong covenant. We see the reason for this even more deeply when we consider that this union reflects our union with Christ. Marriage, therefore, displays to the world and the church the commitment of Jesus to his people in that he has bound himself to us in love. And if that's the case, then we see how this applies to marriage. It means that this marriage is to display the eternal covenant of the gospel, and it calls husband and, and wife to deep commitment and lifelong faithfulness. This image reveals why adultery is so wrong, because we are to be faithful in our devotion to our spouse as Jesus is eternally faithful to us. It reveals why divorce in the scriptures is to be avoided except in the most dire of circumstances because it does not show the everlasting love of God for his bride. It reveals why all forms of unfaithfulness are sinful because they don't image to the world the never failing faithfulness of God in Christ. Paul says of the union between a husband and wife that it is a mystery just as the union of Christ and the church is a mystery. Remember that in Paul's thinking, a mystery is something that was previously unknown but has now been revealed. And this is the astonishing thing, I think. I think what he's saying is this, that, that from the very first marriage, the uniting of a woman and a man was always, 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 always supposed to be a reflection of the union between Christ and the church. And while that, that gospel reality was unknown for century upon century, we now have come to see this mystery. We've now come to see what God was picturing in marriage from the very beginning. And we're invited now into this privilege of allowing our marriages to reenact and image the beauty of what God has done for his people through Christ. Well, Paul summarizes his teaching in verse 33. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He restates his two core commands. John Stott is helpful here again. He says of these two commands this. Uh, I'll read a little bit longer quote. He says, we've seen that the, es the essence of Paul's instruction is wives submit, husbands love. And that these words are different from one another since they recognize the headship which God has given to the husband. Yet, yet when we try to define the two verbs, it's not easy to distinguish clearly between them. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up for somebody as Christ gave himself up for the church. Thus, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely that selfless self-giving, namely that selfless self-giving, which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. 
We've said a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. And these two things make up the soil in which a God-honoring marriage grows. What if we could make it even simpler? (laughs) What if we could say that the soil that a spirit-filled marriage grows in is made up simply of selfless, self-giving love? Or just a selfless, self-giving? That that as husband and wife continually give themselves up for one another, they're displaying the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. They are reminding one another of the love of God in Christ who selflessly gave himself for our salvation. The unique application then is that the deeper we understand the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the union of Christ and his church, the more the the more we seek to allow that mystery to be the soil out of which our lives grow, the more our marriages will be filled with joy and be a reflection of the gospel. Should we read about other aspects of how to grow our marriages? Of course. But we can never neglect the need for husband and wife to be filled with the Spirit, seeking to live lives of selfless, self-giving, that flow from the reality that Jesus has given himself up for us. We love God because he first loved us. And we love one another best when we allow his sacrificial, humble love to be the guiding principle of our lives as a whole and of our marriages in particular. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us. Father, thank you for Christ who selflessly gave himself for us. Teach us how to do that in our marriages in a unique way, but in every relationship of our lives that we would be selflessly giving of ourselves to one another for your glory. We ask us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close by singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, and then I'll lead us in a benediction. Let's stand and sing this song together.